This morning's scripture reading will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 through 7. I will be reading from the New King James Version. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. years ago, I received a letter from the IRS. Now, no one wants to receive a letter from the IRS. In this letter that I received, they were making inquiry and needing some additional information regarding the tax return I had filed for that year. Now, the problem was I had not yet filed a tax return. In fact, someone had stolen my identity and had filed a tax return in my name trying to get some kind of a refund, not knowing that I am the last person that you want to steal his identity. Now, my experience was not an isolated incident. Last year alone, there were more than 15 million cases of identity theft, totaling about $16 billion dollars. Now over the past six years, identity thieves have caused $106 billion worth of damage. And close to 100 million additional Americans have had their identities put in jeopardy through uh, databases being uh, corrupted or whatever the case may be. Now When we think of identity theft, that's what we normally think of, isn't it? We think of finances because uh, for the most part, that's what the world is concerned with. They're concerned with finances and and ways in which they can gain more finance through uh, dishonest means. But that is not the only type of identity theft that is going on in the world today. There are other types of of identity theft. In fact, there are millions of identity thieves, not just in our nation, but across the world today, who are in the process of stealing identity. The difference between the financial identity thieves and the ones with which we want our concern this morning is that the millions across the world and billions across the world, they are not stealing the identities of multiple people. They are, in fact, just trying to steal the identity of one person. And that one person, of course, is Christ. Now, they do use similar techniques. People who try to steal the identity of Christ will begin to try to convince us as to why they believe what they believe and why they teach what they teach. And they want to convince the victim that what they are teaching and what they are promoting, why it is right, even though... When we look in the pages of the Bible, it says something different. Some say, well, times have changed. 
The Bible is, this, the New Testament alone is about 2,000 years old, so we have to change with the times and the cultures and things of that nature. That's one thing that they say. The only problem is, behind this thought of, well, things are different, things always change and improve, or whatever the case may be, Solomon made a statement regarding that idea. He said, the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new? Is there anything whereof where they may say, see, this is new? He says, no, it hath been already of old, which was before us. Ecclesiastes 1, 9 through 10. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, the writer, the inspired writer, wasn't talking about the technologies that would come because he wasn't aware of those technologies. He was talking about just exactly the subject matter of which we speak today. He's talking about changing God's pattern, changing God's laws. He says that's been in existence from the very beginning of time. That's not going to change. Maybe the method changes from person to person, from culture to culture. But the fact that people try to change God's laws is nothing new. I think we need to understand that the greatest blessing that any of us can ever have is to be members of the Lord's church. That's the greatest blessing that we can ever have in this life or the next. So if we're going to be members of the Lord's church, we need to exalt it as God's eternal plan, Ephesians 3, 10 through 11. The many denominations in the world, many of them, teach the church as some sort of an afterthought. Christ came to the world and He was not successful in establishing His kingdom because they teach that He came to establish an earthly kingdom, which was absolutely not the case. He said, in fact, my, my kingdom is not of this world. He came and did establish a spiritual kingdom. And we need to uphold it as that. We need to honor it as the kingdom which was purchased with His very blood, Acts twenty twenty eight. The denominations of the world do not honor that. And I think that it is absolutely the case, if we're going to be blessed with the privilege of being a member of His body, a member of His church, we need to be able to identify His church, and I believe that we are absolutely able to do that. Jesus said, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. That's an imperative. He's very specific. I will build my church. And if He said He would build His church, we ought to be able to identify that church, right? We should not be taken in by those who would steal Christ's identity, those who would... Uh, usurp His authority, those who would try to steal His crown and His throne, we ought to be able to identify that. And it is also the case that sometimes in this life, we struggle with our spiritual identity. We have to be able to constantly be brought back into line. We have to be able to focus and to look at what God wants us to do and be able to access His commandments 
and to never lose our spiritual identity. That doesn't mean it won't happen, but that means we need to be on guard at all times, guarding against that from happening. And if it does happen, because we have applied ourselves to the gospel, because we have dedicated ourselves to a study of God's Word, we are able to identify those times. And we're able to stop and to refocus and to get back on track again. We need to be able to make sure that we're doing exactly what God has asked us to do. If we're going to be members of His one church that He said He would build. But before we can do that, we need to understand what His mission is, right? We need to understand that His mission is my mission, is our mission. And if we're going to be members of His church, we have to acknowledge that. We have to be able to look at the identifying marks of the church. God has never expected us to simply take someone's word for it. Someone says, well, this is the church that we read about in the New Testament. Or that is the church that we read about in the New Testament. He's never wanted us to simply take someone's word for it. He has always expected us to be able to identify the marks that come along with that church that we read about in the New Testament. He's left that for us for a reason. The church we read about in the New Testament was a church that was hard at work. It was a church that took the opportunities presented to them to be able to spread the gospel and to grow the kingdom of God. However, when we think of this aspect of reaching out, do we not normally think of simply evangelism, reaching out to those who have never obeyed the gospel, reaching out to those who have never identified with any kind of a religious organization? I think that is commonly what we think about. But is that all there is to reaching out? Is that all there is to being able to look at an organization and see if it has the identifying mark of reaching out? I don't think that's the case at all. I want us to notice some of the things in which the early church was involved. The early church was was involved, of course, in evangelism. We see that throughout the book of Acts. We see throughout the book of Acts that the early church was involved in benevolence. They were involved in worship. They were involved in edification. They were involved in restoring the lost. They were involved in visiting each other. And they were involved in educating the members. There is a whole host of things of which the early church was involved in. When we look at the membership, we know that all members, according to their abilities were involved themselves in the work of the church, according to their abilities. Now, from what is the church comprised? The church is comprised of people, individuals, right? We know that it was people for whom Christ shed His blood. It was for people that He gave Himself on the cross. It wasn't for a building or a piece of property or anything of that nature. It was people and is people who are the stones of the building, right? It is people who are soldiers 
in the army. It is people who are sheep in the fold, who are branches on the vine. It is people who are the citizens of the kingdom. Therefore, it is essential that people be able to identify the church for which Christ died and to be able to be strong, therefore making the church strong. But for that to happen, we have to be able to look at the identifying marks. We have to be able to identify what the church of the New Testament is and not be uh, brought into some kind of a theology of someone who has attempted to steal the identity of Christ. I want us to look at some identifying marks this morning. Now this isn't an all-inclusive list. This is some of the prominent marks that we need to be able to look at and be able to say, am I a member of a congregation that has these marks? Because it's extremely important. We need to be able to notice the characteristics Again, we're not going to notice every single characteristic. But I want us to notice some of the important ones that we think of when we think of this church. The first one I want us to notice this morning is visitation. Visitation. That is something that sometimes we misunderstand. We think of visitation as simply perhaps calling on someone who is sick or who is not able to get out of the house or whatever the case may be. That is part of it. But visitation, in essence, really is the way in which we communicate with the world, isn't it? Now, of course, there has been a time in the past when that was the primary way we communicated. We went from home to home or whatever the case may be. Times have changed. We do have some... uh, uh, things in this world now that have altered that just a little bit. We have TV, we have radio, we have the internet, we have email, we have social media. We have all sorts of ways that we can communicate with each other. But there should never be a time when we are not able to look someone in the eye and try to talk to them about who our Lord is. That's how the first century church did it. That's how we ought to do it in some capacity. Have you ever wondered why the Lord's directive to go into all the world has been called the Great Commission? Have you ever thought about that? Because it is a great task. It's a monumental task. We need to be able to communicate that task to people. We need to be able to visit them. Jesus made the statement, Go ye therefore and make disciples of every nation, right? He said in verse 20, teaching them to observe all things, or rather verse 19, whatsoever I've commanded you. How do we do that? We have to communicate that in some way, don't we? We have to be able to sit down and be able to turn through the pages of the Bible and if an organization refuses to be an organization of visitation where they do not allow communication, that is not the New Testament church. We go back into the history of the world. We go back to what we know as the Dark Ages. You know why they called it the Dark Ages? One of the reasons was because the Catholic Church refused to allow the Word of God to be placed into the hands of the people. In fact, they would chain the Bible to the pulpit. They would not allow it to be translated into, in their opinion, the barbarian tongue. 
They would not allow it to be translated from Latin into the common language of the day. They didn't want people being able to communicate what the Bible said. They didn't want us to visit in someone's home and say, now wait a minute, the Bible says this, why are you practicing something else? I've I've mentioned this example, but it's worth mentioning again. When I was in northeast India a couple of years ago, we had baptized a young man, and across the road was a Catholic temple. So we went next door, we knocked on the door, and the Catholic pastor, I didn't know they had Catholic pastors, came out and we studied with him, and I sat on the front porch of that Catholic temple for probably an hour or more, studying the Bible, and that man would tell me, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, I didn't... He said, I don't know much about the Bible. That's still a characteristic of that denomination today. They don't want you to know anything about the Bible. Why? They want to communicate to you what they want you to believe. That's not what the New Testament church does. The New Testament church gives us the information, we ingest the information, and then we make a determination. That's called communication, isn't it? We understand the great task of evangelism. But we'll understand it more when we understand the enormity of sin. Why would we not want visitation? Why would we not want to communicate to people exactly the enormity of that sin? We understand that the soul is worth so much. For what is a man uh, prospered? If he gained the whole world yet loses his own soul? How is that? And only the gospel can save us. Only the gospel can save the soul, Romans 1.16. Why? Because it is exactly that precious, Mark 16.26. It's worth more than the whole world. So we have to be able to communicate that to people. When we read in the New Testament and we're studying the history of the early church, three times it has been stated that the gospel went into the whole world. Three times. What a task that was fulfilled. Those early Christians took that commandment, and we might say in our vernacular, and ran with it, right? Not only did they run with it, they ran all over the world with it. It went everywhere. It was in every part of the world. Everyone alive at that time had an opportunity to hear the Word. Now that doesn't mean every person alive heard the Gospel, but they had an opportunity to hear it, if they wanted to hear it. That's what we're supposed to do today. I want us to notice in that Great Commission, Jesus didn't say go into all the world and convert everybody. He said go into the world and teach them. Teach them. You know, isn't it good that He didn't require out of us to convert the world? He required out of us to give the opportunity to the world to be converted. Give the world an opportunity to become His disciple. By the time the events of Acts 16 verse 7 rolled around, when we look at those things, they're described as those that have turned the world upside down. They turned the world upside down through their communication. But I want us to notice that within that communication of the visitation, we see compassion. When we communicate God's desires to the world, we see within that His compassion for us, right? He didn't have to give us an opportunity to obey the gospel. 
He didn't have to give us an opportunity to come out of sin. But if we want to, we have to be able to identify His church. And within that, we see His compassion by necessity. If He shows compassion to us, we have to show compassion to other people. That's another mark. Benevolence. That's what we call it, right? Helping others when we have opportunity. The first century church had compassion through benevolence and it is seen. Acts chapter 4. We see that the people came together and they sold their possessions. Those who wanted to do that, they weren't commanded to do it. And they helped those who were in need. We need to help those in need if it's appropriate to help them. Paul commanded this. He said, as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6 verse 10. There's this idea in some areas, and it has sneaked its way into the church, that we can only help those who are Christians. Well, that's an anti-position. We're not antis. We're simply faithful. We have an opportunity to help people. We ought to help them if it's within our ability. They don't have to be Christians, but we especially help those who are. If we show the proper compassion for people, that gives us an opportunity to introduce them to Christ. Now that doesn't mean we support those who refuse to support themselves. 2 Timothy or 2 Thessalonians 3:10. We support those who are trying to help themselves. But I want us to notice when we look at visitation, we see that communication with people. We see compassion toward others within that communication. But there's another identifying mark I want us to notice. Education We go back to the dark ages. Education was not high on the list. People wanted, or the leaders of the Catholic Church wanted the people to know what they wanted them to know. They they weren't interested in education. They weren't interested in people reading the Word of God and, and being able to look at it and say, okay, this is what the Lord said. This is the pattern I am to follow. They weren't interested in that. But the church of the New Testament is interested in education. Now, we educate ourselves in a myriad of ways. One way we do it is in our corporate devotion. We come together and we say, we're going to worship God. Well, we educate each other in doing that. When we worship, we're teaching, right? Notice what the first century church understood. They understood that they needed to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. It said they did that in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers, Acts 2.42. Now, that didn't just happen in the beginning of the church. It continues even unto this very day. We are meeting on the first day of the week for fellowship, for breaking of bread, and in prayers. But we do other things, right? We do other things. And upon the first day of the week, Acts 20, verse 7, When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. How was it exactly do do we believe that the first century church came to the understanding that they needed to be steadfast? They needed to always be growing in the knowledge of God. How was it that they knew this? Education. Education. They were taught those things. And that can only happen when we... Properly speak from the Word of God. 
Again, we go back to the dark ages. They weren't properly speaking from the Word of God. They were speaking the opinions of men. They were using foreign sources. We only have one source. We, we, we don't have a latter-day revelation. We have one revelation. The New Testament is about 2,000 years old. Nothing new has happened since John penned the final words of the revelation. It was completed. Jude said it once for all delivered unto the saints, talking about the gospel system of faith. The pulpits of the world must be strong. They have to preach and teach from the Bible. When we pray, we have to pray according to God's will. We have to sing according to what is scriptural. Colossians 3.16 We admonish each other. We teach each other. That's one way that we educate. We have to have to say the things in our prayers according to what Jesus has commanded us. We have to pray in the proper way. There are denominations in the world that pray through other avenues other than through Jesus to the Father. That's who we pray to. Jesus didn't say, pray to Him. He said, you'll no longer ask anything of Me, but in My name you'll ask the Father. He'll give it to you. So we have to do it accordingly. Our devotion has to be scriptural. But there's another aspect of education that is so very important. What about our Bible class time? We have to be dedicated to teaching the principles of the Bible, not the ever-changing cultural tide. Our culture says you can marry whoever you want to marry. It doesn't make any difference. Man, woman... Uh, you know, eventually people will be marrying animals. Where's the end? There's no end to it, right? There's no end to it. We can live however we want to live. doesn't make any difference as long as you feel like it's right. See, we can't teach according to those things. We have to teach according to the Bible. And we use Bible classes. During a Bible class, we have a great opportunity for the Christian to drink a little deeper from the waters of life. We have an opportunity to ask questions, to make comments. Peter made the statement. He said, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. We ought to desire the sincere milk of the Word. Now, do babies never stop growing? Do babies just get to a certain size after about six months and then that's the end of it and they continually drink milk for the next 80 years? No. Babies grow. They grow into adulthood. They get teeth. They begin to eat solid food. And I couldn't tell you the last time I drank any milk, physically speaking. See, we begin to eat food. Solid food. Same thing spiritually speaking. We need to be able to grow into eating solid food. How do we do that? Well, we do it through a study of the Word. Education. Now, There are denominations in the world, and most of them. They say, well, you have to listen to what the pastor says. And they use that in a denominational sense. A pastor is an elder, a bishop, an overseer. It's the office of an elder. Most denominations in the world look at the pastor and they say, well, that's the preacher. No, the preacher is an evangelist. Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. He didn't say do the work of an elder or a pastor or a bishop. Can a preacher be an elder? Well, there are occasions when that is worked out. 
But when we talk about denominations of the world, say you have to listen to your pastor, you have to listen to your priest or your modern day prophet or, or something of that nature. What are they doing? They're taking this book that Paul said is the power of God unto salvation and they are placing that power in the mind of a man or a woman, whatever the case may be. Paul didn't say go ask your preacher or your pastor or, or your whatever the case may be. He said the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation. That isn't what Jesus taught, this denominational mindset, was it? Notice what He said. John twelve forty eight. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. John twelve forty eight. Where are those words? We're holding them in our hands. These are the words of Jesus. That's what's going to judge us. We have to be able to do that. We look in the history of the church, Acts 17.11. The Bereans were uh, commendated because they studied the Scripture daily. They sought out whether or not what Paul was telling them was the truth or whether it was not the truth. And when Scripture is honored, what do we do? Peter said that we grow in knowledge, we grow in grace, we become what God wants us to be. That's an identifying mark. We see visitation, we see education. But I want us to notice... Our final point, and this is something that Satan really wants us to overlook. An identifying mark of the New Testament church is restoration. Restoration. How does that fit into a characteristic? Well, restoration means that you've lost something, right? It's been restored. Yes, we can lose our salvation. So what happens if that is the case? We need to elevate our brethren from sin. We need to bring them up out of that. Paul warned this. He said, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. You lost your place and you need to be restored. He wrote that particular letter to the churches in Galatia. Members. They had already obeyed the gospel but they were losing their stature with God because they were going back to the old law. I want to notice what James said. James, in writing to Christians, he made this statement. He said, Brethren, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Brother, if you fall and someone converts you, brings you back, restores you, elevates you out of sin, you saved a soul from death. We're to look after our brethren. We're to help those who are weaker, Galatians 6.1. If that isn't a characteristic of the New Testament church, there's a problem. There's a problem. We elevate the fallen. But it doesn't just stop there. We must edify those who are in danger of falling. We must edify the faithful. Hopefully, there's no need for restoration if we do that, right? What does edification in the biblical context mean? Well, it means exhorting, strengthening, to build up, to help those, right? When the Jerusalem church heard about the great number of conversions in Antioch, you know what they did? They sent Barnabas. 
And when he arrived, he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord, Acts 11.23. Now that tells us a couple of things, doesn't it? We are to edify, but we cannot overlook the responsibility of the individual to have a purpose of heart to cleave to the Lord. They have to want to be faithful, right? How do we get faith? Well, we begin with wanting faith. We have to have a desire for it. When we look at the history of Paul, he and Barnabas, they visited congregations that they had helped establish and they went to help strengthen them, to edify them. It says, to confirm the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. That's what God expects from us. The way in which the apostles exhorted was how? Instruction. They went and they encouraged. And when they needed restoration, that's what happened. When we read 1 Corinthians, that was one of the problems in Corinth. He was restoring those who had fallen. There were divisions. There was sin. There were all kinds of things. We read uh, 2 Corinthians, and they restored themselves back to their place with God. God had in mind elders, I believe, to be one of the greatest sources of edification. The leaders of the church. That's why we should always be wanting to work toward and have elders. Notice what Paul told the Ephesian elders. He said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. What a, what a responsibility. But there's no better responsibility in the world. Preachers, what are they supposed to do? Exhort, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. But you know who the greatest exhorters in the church are? The membership. That's all of us. We're all members. The writer of Hebrews commanded that we exhort one another daily. Hebrews 3.13 We are the greatest exhorters. The membership. We ought to be a family. In the opening, opening lines of his letter to the Philippian brethren, Paul identified those who made up the congregation of the Lord's church. He said there were evangelists, there were saints, there were bishops, and there were people. There were deacons. Right? That's who makes up the congregation. In essence, we're talking about people, aren't we? We need to edify people. We need to be concerned with people. We don't need to be concerned with circus stunts and things to bring in the community because we want to have 500 people in the auditorium. I wish we had 500 people. But we need to do it through the scriptural manner. We need to do it through visitation. We need to do it through education. We need to do it through restoration. You know, I've never read in the New Testament one time about a clown ministry. Have you ever heard of the clown ministry? Yeah, people are dressed up like a clown. They'll go visit sick children in the hospital. Is it okay to do something like that? Well, I imagine if that's what you wanted to do, that'd be okay. But do I hear or read about the church doing that and doing it in the name of the church? I don't read about that. I don't read about the church teaming up with a secular organization to reach out to the to the youth of a city? Can you be a part of a secular organization and and help to do that? Sure you can. But do you do it in the name of the church? Does the church 
team up with the Boys and Girls Clubs of America? I don't read about that. What about teaming up with denominations? No, we don't team up with denominations. We bring glory and honor to God through His church. That's what we read about. Those are identifying marks of the kingdom. We have to be vigilant. We have to be watchful so that our identities do not become confused and that we lose them. We don't want them stolen from us. We don't want to become something that God is not, right? Paul warned us. He said, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves, 2 Corinthians 13.5. That doesn't mean we're not the New Testament church. That doesn't mean that we're not headed in the right direction. But what it does mean is that we need to stay careful and we need to stay faithful. We need to be what God wants us to be. We need to be ever watchful. We need to be on guard because our adversary, the devil, he goes about like a roaring lion, doesn't he? Seeking whom he may devour, and he is trying to steal the identity of Christ. And he wants to steal the identity of his church. If you're not a member of his church, don't leave here today not in a covenant relationship with God. Obey the gospel. Believe on Christ. Repent of past sins. Confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. That's part of education. And live a faithful life. If you've done that, maybe you've fallen away. Maybe you need restoration. That's part of an identifying mark of the church. Come come back to God. Ask Him to forgive you. Confess your faults. Repent of those things. And we'll pray with you and for you. And God will forgive you. If you have need to answer this invitation, Do that as we stand and as we sing.